Hey, hi, hello there. You are tuned in to Skin in the Game, The Stories My Tattoos Tell, an intimate author experience. Written and performed by me, disabled author and artist, Kelly J. Mendenhall. Let's discover my book together, shall we? You are listening to episode three of Skin in the Game, The Stories My Tattoos Tell, an intimate author experience. And I'm disabled author and artist, Kelly J. Mendenhall, and we are discovering my book together. Last week, I read, let's see, I read chapters two and three. So we talked about my dad's passing and what else? Oh, and my first love. (laughs) That was an awkward chapter to read in some ways. It's weird now to be a 40-year-old woman reading in a committed relationship with your person reading out loud the story about your first love and losing your virginity. It's like weird. I don't know. Maybe other people wouldn't find it weird. It's just awkward a little bit and it feels a little silly, but hopefully you all enjoyed the stories. Before we start reading the book today, there's a few things that I wanted to remember to tell you. One is that I have created a coloring book of my tattoos for anyone who, so you can color my tattoos in however you feel like it in this coloring book. So if you give me a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts or even better both, and I've got the links to everything in, in the show notes. If you'll send me an email with a screenshot of your rating and review, I'll send you the coloring book. And yeah, I would just really appreciate it. It helps, especially for independent creators like myself. It helps boost us in the podcast charts and algorithms so that more people hear what we're doing. And hopefully you find this worthy of other people hearing it. So that's the first thing. If you rate and review, screenshot it, and you can either email it to me at hello at kellyjmenenhall.com, or you can hit me up on one of my socials and just send me a screenshot to my DM of your rating and review. Then I will send you back the PDF document full of coloring pages made of my tattoos. So that's kind of rad. The other thing I wanted to tell you about is the affordable art revolution. I forget that some people follow me in some spaces and some people follow me in other spaces. And I forget to mention all my different projects when I'm doing something. So I haven't told you guys about the affordable art revolution Basically, the thing that has gotten me through all of the four spinal surgeries, the hysterectomy, the years of medicalized trauma, medical gaslighting, all all of the things that I've endured over the last seven years, my main coping mechanism has been hand stitching and embroidery and applique work. And I make 
like old school Christmas stockings, like you've, my great grandma made them. So it's usually a grandma or a great grandma who made the ones that I hear about. And they're these kits that you can get from a company called Bucilla and, and you create these very ornate and very, very sparkly Christmas stockings and ornaments and things. And so I do that. I also do hand embroidery, like embroidery hoops and things like that. And over this past Christmas, I was inspired. I was thinking about my blog, my old blog, Nerdzilla Lives, and my blog now. And I was, I was thinking about, hang on, I need a drink. Sorry, friends. My, uh, Cotton mouth is still pretty fierce because I'm still having to medicate pretty heavily for my pain. I am recording this episode on July 11th, so I have eight days until my nerve ablation. And it cannot come soon enough. Okay, now I've wet my, my whistle a little bit. Let me try this again. So I use stitching and creating as a therapeutic coping mechanism for the crazy pain that I live in and for my anxiety and PTSD, all kinds of things. There is a meditative piece that comes with creating. If you're a creative person who has a favorite hobby or, or thing that they like to make, you know when you get in that zone you are in that zone and you kind of drown everything else out. For me, it's stitching. And I had just picked up the hobby of making these ornate like stockings six months or something before I became unexpectedly medically disabled. So all those years that I spent living on the couch, I got really good <laughs> at, at the different embroidery stitches and at putting together the different stockings and ornaments. And I've started designing some of my own things. And for years, people have encouraged me to sell the things that I make. And because whatever, they're, they are really freaking cool and beautiful. But for me, I was always like, okay, but if I if I tried to sell these things that I make, I would have to price out everyone like me. Like if I charged what like industry standard is or whatever. So like in the crafting world, like the stockings that I make, it, people charge like between 180 to like $225 for someone to create one of these stockings. That's with like a fabric liner on the inside and all these different things. And I'm not saying it's not worth that. It is. We put, I mean, the, the stockings range in time from like 45 to 75 hours or something like that, that it takes to complete one of these sets. So, I mean, it's, I mean, you're putting in a lot of work. But it's something that I do anyway because I enjoy it. So I've been making people stockings and ornaments and things as like gifts all these years I'm not selling them so i was like i just don't like i i don't want to turn it into that 
I don't want to turn this hobby that brings me joy into like work. But around Christmas time, I had this idea and I thought, well, what if I could make art more inclusive? What if I could make folk art and handmade things more accessible to people like me living on limited income or, you know, being disabled, living with invisible illness and, and things like that. Like a lot of us really don't have fun money. And so asking someone like me to spend over $200 on a Christmas stocking when a monthly disability check in my experience is like $1,300 a month. That's not, I'm not interested in doing that. I'm not interested in like making people like me feel excluded from being able to enjoy beautiful handcrafted items. So I thought, what if I could make it inclusive? And what if I could expose people to stitching in a way that they would feel like it was more approachable or easy for them and that you don't have to be like, like a uh, old grandma type or whatever. I'm like, if this six foot tall Amazonian woman covered in tattoos can do this, surely so can you, even if you don't think that you fit into the grandma crafting crowd, right? So anyway, I had this idea on Christmas Eve and I thought, what if I made it so that folk art and and handmade art was making it into the hands of more people and and giving them a new hobby to cope and process the things that they're dealing with like I do. And so I decided to launch the Affordable Art Revolution. Everything in the store is pay what you can which means that for any particular item that's in my shop, whether it's something I've already made or something made to order, you, you pay for the tax and shipping on the item, and then you decide how much you can afford to pay for the item, and you send that to my tip jar, which is a virtual tip jar. You can send it to Venmo or, or my tip jar, however you choose. It's all on my website. So... It's pay what you can or name your own price for literally anything that's not a custom or personalized order. And then for things like these Christmas stockings that take 70 something hours to make and and whatnot, I can't make them for free. I can't make them for nothing, but I charge 125 for a stocking. So I'm trying. <laughs> I have to be able, but the thing is, is that like, so you pay for the stocking kit and have it shipped to me. That's your form of deposit in case you're interested. And then I create the stocking and add my own design flair to it. And then I I buy the fabric like I'll ch I try to find fabric to line the stockings with that goes well with the theme of the stocking so for instance I'm currently oh I better not use that example because he might listen to this podcast okay so for one of my customers 
I'm making Christmas stockings for her and her mom and her dad. And her dad is a retired football coach, so his stocking has a football playing Santa on it. And for the liner fabric, I got stuff like like football fabric that's got like, you know, stuff from football games, the whatever. You know what I'm saying. Words are hard. And for my friend who got the, she got this like mid-century modern pinup vibe stocking kit of a woman putting ornaments on a tree. So I got really cool, sticking with the pinup vibe, I got really cool like Christmas pinup fabric to line the stocking with. So it's, it's $125 for me to make one of these stockings plus you buy the kit and send it to me uh, as your deposit. But I'm spending usually $20 on a yard of fabric to, to do the liner. So really, it's more like $100 per stocking, and that's about as low as I can get. But embroidery hoops, there's different sizes and prices, and you can get something custom or wait for me to randomly create and post something on the site that you like. But but yeah, so that's the affordable art revolution. I, I've had, my mom has been a guest artist and she's contributed some things. If you are an artist and you would be interested in contributing a piece of your work in the store, I would love that. So please reach out to me. And yeah, I just kind of wanted to fill you, fill you all in on a little bit of, of the other things that I do. I also write for like medical health related websites and blogs and stuff like that. So yeah, there's a lot of different ways that we might be able to collaborate together. So check out my website, kellyjmendenhall.com slash work. And that's also where you'll find all of my podcast interview guest appearances some of them are video, so that's fun. Yeah, and I just I just wanted to remember to tell you all about that because it's it's another way that you can support the work that I do. My m main source of income is the social security income and then I sell the things that I create and sell podcast subscriptions and all the things that all helps to supplement my social security income and helps to keep all these projects afloat. So that's another way that you can support my work if, if you're interested in doing so. Yeah. And maybe, maybe on the next episode, I'll talk a little bit about the advocacy work that I do in things regarding medical gaslighting. But for now, I've, I've taken up enough of your time. So this chapter that we're about to start is chapter four, and it's called All of You or Greenish Brown Female Sheep. This is going to be one of the harder chapters for me to read, I think. It was one of the harder chapters for me to write. I put it off for <laughs> quite a while when I was writing the book because it's, yeah, it's still there are still wounds associated with the events that take place in this chapter. And 
there are still people that I very much love whose stories are also in this chapter. And I remember vaguely writing the chapter. Like I remember some of the stories that I shared. I know that some of them are not my favorite things to remember that I've done and experienced, but I'm working on that whole, like, forgive yourself for the things that you did while you were in survival mode. And that applies, obviously, to my adolescence quite a bit, because as we've touched on in the book so far, I had crazy abusive stepbrothers. So anyway, it yeah, it's going to be a wild ride, this one. So buckle up. All right. Girls are crazy. I was 11 or 12 years old when I met her. It was sixth grade, and she was that one friend who is the worst possible influence on you. Like, really, seriously. She's the worst in my whole life. She was a year older than me, but she'd been held back a grade, which meant that she had friends who were a grade ahead of us as well, and she floated between the outcasts and the cool kids. Her ability to fit in anywhere was relatively effortless, whereas I had rampant social anxiety and I was an awkward mess. I don't remember how we became friends. I just know that around my 7th or 8th grade year, she started showing up in my photos and in my memories. One of my first memories of her is also the one that sticks out in my head as the biggest red flag. I should have seen her special brand of crazy coming from a mile away. It was the night she showed up at my house unannounced and intoxicated when I was 12. She showed up at my house with some other middle school aged girl and a carload of guys accompanied them. The guys were in their 20s and I'm pretty sure they'd all been drinking and or were high when they arrived. Angela, quote, <laughs> her, her name is not really Angela. Angela came to the door unannounced accompanied by this girl I didn't know, maniacally jazzed up about something. I immediately felt uneasy and decided this was best kept out of earshot of my mother and pushed the girls out onto the front stoop. How I kept the ruckus down enough for my mom not to venture outside and ask, what the hell is going on? I will never know. All I can remember is that as quickly as they showed up and I encountered this weird blur that was Angela, the car suddenly sped off with all of them in it, and that was that. This encounter maybe lasted 20 minutes. I didn't even know what to think. This was only the beginning of the weird shit. So, again, we're talking about a 12-year-old girl. Or, she I guess she's older than me, so 13-year-old girl. Showing up drunk and high and with a carload of 20-year-olds. Like, that. that's the biggest red flag. The encounter maybe lasted 20 minutes. I didn't even know what to think. This was only the beginning of the weird shit that would happen over the many years of friendship with Angela. I remember being in 8th grade and hanging out at Angela's house with a mutual friend when Angela started acting really strange. She began talking about how her dad was going to beat her when he got home from work because we'd asked her mom for a cigarette. She told us over and over again that he was going to beat her ass when he got home. I was terrified. And then she just wandered out into the field between her house and the neighbors and disappeared for about a half an hour. 
When she came back, she was barefoot and disheveled and told us she'd been hearing voices. Part of me knew she had to be, be completely full of shit, and part of me was scared shitless. Like, who was this girl? For what it's worth, I spent probably entire months worth of overnights at her house. Throughout our years of friendship, I never once saw her dad beat her or even raise his voice. This was in spite of our propensity for showing up to the house with male counterparts, drunk, to swim in the family pool late at night. Also, still while underage. Often, we emerged from her basement bedroom with obvious hangovers. Her dad was never more than gruff, skeptical, and tired of our shit. I still carry a great deal of affection for her parents, as they tolerated and loved me throughout the years, in spite of our many shenanigans. Like sand through the hourglass. Being friends with Angela was like flirting with danger on a daily basis and not always in the most fun ways. She was a train wreck of human emotion. I'm almost certain now that she had or has an undiagnosed mental illness. Angela was always the girl who loved to test boundaries. She'd walk up to a guy she was dating and for no apparent reason punch him dead in the face. She would lie and cheat her way through every relationship she found herself in, and she seemed to get off on manipulating and ruining men. I saw her drive two men crazy, watched her slowly deteriorate their mental fortitude and well-being through constant mind games and psychological abuse. Observing Angela's romantic relationships was like watching a surrealist soap opera with the volume so loud it's almost too painful to watch. At the same time, she was a lot of fun to hang out with. She was rowdy as shit, always had your back in a fight, loved a good mosh pit, always had cigarettes, and knew where to find booze, and she made staying up until 4 a.m. seem entirely reasonable. Usually, you were laughing so hard you didn't notice time passing anyway. All of these skills became especially useful to me after high school. I was only 16 when I graduated from Stone School and in the throes of PTSD that no one had diagnosed yet. Angela dropped out of high school that year or the year before, so we had a whole lot of partying and mischief to dive into. And did we ever dive right in? The Methods. The summer after I graduated from high school, Angela and I worked at Pizza Hut with two guys who were also best friends. They were also meth heads. We met up with them one night to party. We were in the middle of nowhere in Stockbridge, Michigan. When we were trying to find the house that one of the guys lived in, he said, look for the white house with a pickup in the driveway. Every house on that road was white with a pickup in the driveway. <laughs> I'll never forget that. <laughs> I remember joking that if anything happened to us, we'd have no way to tell anyone where we were or how to find us. Looking back, I can't help but think, how the hell am I still alive? But this was normal for us, or at least not that bad comparatively. Angela and I consumed three bottles of cheap wine that night each. We each hooked up with our respective meth head in the living room of the house. Angela and her guy on the couch, myself and my guy on the floor. The shame and disgust I felt on the drive home the next morning, just as the sun was rising, was palpable. We were both hungover and probably still a little bit drunk. We also had to be to work in a matter of just a few hours. 
We swore never to speak of that night again, and I promised myself I would never be that wasted and that irresponsible with my body ever again. The Suicide Machines. Still one of the best Detroit bands ever. Later that summer, we went to see The Suicide Machines, a Detroit band, outdoors in some killer summer heat. Oh God, it was awful. It was a huge summer radio festival put on by 89X. We had one of the meth heads with us, and he hadn't had a fix for several hours. He was more than a little in need of a stiff drink by the time we arrived because, as it turns out, he was also a drunk. The guy Angela was dating at the time locked my keys in the car as we descended upon the park to find out where we were going. We were soon faced with a choice, smash out a window to get the booze from the back of the car or let the alcoholic meth head go into full-blown withdrawal in the middle of a rock concert crawling with park security. (laughs) It's absurd. I was barely 17 and had no clue whom I would call or how I would call them to help us, so I let him smash the window. That window was never fixed. The following winter was cold. Yeah, so back then we didn't have cell phones. This was like 1999. So, yeah, we didn't have cell phones. We could just like call somebody to come pick us up or break into my car at the outdoor punk festival. (laughs) Anyway, the ex-boyfriend. Right on the edge of summer and fall that year, Angela's ex-boyfriend, the first guy I saw her drive crazy, showed up at Pizza Hut and was waiting for her when we walked out into the parking lot. I hung back while they argued in the parking lot and could hear him insisting that she let him get in her car and ride back home with her. She and I were supposed to be on our way to her house when, where several of our coworkers were planning to meet up to get drunk and play in the pool. Angela told me to go ahead and get in my car and follow her home. My gut told me that something terrible was about to happen. I didn't anticipate that it would include me following her car, speeding around 100 miles per hour in the dark for 15 miles from Ann Arbor to Chelsea. We didn't have cell phones back then, so there was no way to call her and ask why her car was swerving, stopped abruptly, and then took off again like a bat out of hell down the road. I just followed as closely as possible, knowing it it must have been some kind of an emergency. Eventually, she screeched into the parking lot of Chelsea Hospital, parked in front of the emergency room, and ran from the driver's side to the passenger side door of the car. It turned out that the ex-boyfriend had tried to take the wheel of the car and drive them both off the road. When he wasn't able to overpower her to get control of the vehicle, he slit his wrist. Blood was everywhere. This was the same ex-boyfriend who assaulted me and tore the rotator cuff in my shoulder one night when I got in the middle of their argument and tried to persuade her to stop fighting with him. The most surprising thing about that was that he and I had been nearly inseparable, like siblings, just a couple years before they started dating. We all have that one crazy friend, don't we? (laughs) I say, like, okay, so I kind of assumed everybody had, like, a super insane female friend in their life, at least one, until my editor was like, yeah, that's not, I never had 
a friend like that. So I don't know. Maybe not. It was never a secret that my mom couldn't stand Angela. Thankfully, she never knew the extent of all the shit that we got into, but it doesn't take much maternal instinct to know when your kids are up to no good. This is especially true when that something regularly involves drugs and or alcohol. I never did more than smoke pot when I was in high school, and even that was short-lived. However, my friends were up to plenty else, and my mom knew it. I was pretty honest with her about that type of thing, surprisingly. Looking back now, I'm convinced that my mom's trust in me played a big part in my not going down the same path that many of my friends did. The standing rule in our house was that if myself or my sister were at a party and found ourselves with no sober ride, we could call home and my mom would come and get us, no questions asked, and we wouldn't be in trouble. I had to do it at least two or three times, and every time I expected that she would show up raging, red-faced, and yelling at me. She kept her word, though. I never got in trouble. In spite of my mother's many objections, I continued to hang out with Angela, even after I started to get my life together, while she remained trapped in the same spiral of havoc she'd been in since the day I met her. We all have a crazy friend when we're young, don't we? Ladies, you know the one that I mean. The friend who would follow you into the front lines of battle one minute and the next won't even look at you. You can go weeks or months without speaking to one another because she gets pissed off about something you said or didn't say, and she can hold a grudge like nothing you've ever seen before. When I was 18, Angela stopped speaking to me. She was pregnant with her firstborn son and was about to marry his father. He would be the second man I saw her drive to the edge of sanity. I had unwittingly introduced the two as he was also one of my closest friends. I met him when I was in high school at Stone School. He was similarly crazy, but not quite on her level. For those years, when he was tangled up in her, they were quite the matched set. One night, when I was 18, I was hanging out at a steak and shake in Ypsilanti, Michigan with some friends. Among these friends included a guy Angela had hooked up with behind her boyfriend's back right before she got pregnant. I can't remember how he found out, but he showed up a short while later with a knife. I called Angela's house to tell her, to try to get her to talk to him and help him calm down, but she wouldn't get on the phone. So, I told her mom what had happened instead, hoping she would get Angela to talk some sense back into her boyfriend. Angela was pissed off that I said anything to her mom, and it would be years before I heard from her again. Guess who's back? Fast forward four years. I was in my college dorm, pulling an all-nighter writing a paper, when I heard from Angela out of the blue on MySpace. I remember actually holding my breath when the message came up as I tried to think of a way to respond. Was this a setup? I mean, you never knew with her. Within a few minutes, we were talking and catching up as though no time had passed at all. She told me that she and her husband, the boyfriend from before with the knife, now had two boys who were two years and one year old, both born in August, their birthdays only a few days after mine. Angela and the kids were in Georgia while her husband was serving in the army. They were, she said, separated because he had cheated on her while he was deployed overseas. She failed to mention the, like, five million affairs she had. Anyway, Angela moved back to Michigan not long after we spoke. She and the boys moved into her parents' house. 
Angela and the boys were planning to live there for an indeterminate amount of time. She was planning to go to school to be a nurse. She loved blood and gore. She literally used to laugh while she was getting tattoos because she enjoyed the pain. Unfortunately, nursing school lasted for about one semester. From about 2005 to 2008, I was deeply entangled in the lives of Angela and her two boys. So much happened in those years that it's hard to keep track. I feel like I've lived five lifetimes in that handful of years. I quickly became known and accepted as Aunt Kelly, and the boys became the light of my life. For years, while their father was on active duty overseas, I helped raise them. I was their nanny for the one summer their mom attempted to attend college. I was at every birthday and holiday. I even helped potty train the youngest brother. I also helped re-potty train the older brother after their dad was deployed for a second tour in Iraq, and he refused to use the, quote, big boy potty until daddy came home safe. I remember teaching the youngest boy his first words and helping him practice pronunciation. His first word was happy. I delighted in the way he said it. Happy. With a pause in the middle of the word for emphasis. In 2005, I moved into a house with my boyfriend about 10 miles from where Angela lived. I was with her and the boys pretty much every day. In October 2006, when I broke up with the boyfriend and had no place of my own, I decided to rent an apartment closer to campus, about 40 miles from where we were all living at the time. Angela and the boys rented an apartment across the way from me in the same complex just a month or so later. We became this weird little atypical family, and I loved being able to help with the boys so much. We had dinner together most nights, and I helped get the boys to and from preschool. In spite of how busy everything was, life was pretty chill. Things got significantly less chill in December 2006 when I found out that my 14-year-old niece and oldest sister were having such a hard time getting along that they were getting into fistfights and the police were being called for domestic disputes. I had no idea what I was signing up for when I told my sister to send my niece to live with me. She became part of our little family too for a time, but it wasn't long before everything imploded. Not so happy. Over the next six or eight months, I took on a teenager who turned out to be using a lot of drugs, having a lot of sex, and doing a lot of pathological lying. It was like watching my younger self through the eyes of an adult who made it to the other side, but I was powerless to stop the inevitable train wreck. My niece wasn't having it. She rebelled against anything and everything I tried to do for her. In January 2007, I lost two of my best friends in the same week. Mark died in combat, and Jeff died from complications with pneumonia he didn't know he had. In February, I traveled abroad for the first time, attending a study abroad program in London with my friend Bridget. It was also my first time flying, and I was scared out of my mind, to put it mildly. It took a lot of drugs to get me on that plane. Then, I graduated from college that April. The job I'd had since 2005 was a campus job, so as soon as I graduated from college, the job was gone too. It didn't take long before I was tapped on resources. I mean, beyond drained. I was living off of credit cards to support my niece and keep us housed, clothed, and fed. 
I was job hunting to no avail and going through a bit of a mental collapse because of everything that had happened in such a short amount of time, losing Mark and Jeff, graduating, losing my job, and dealing with serious family drama. It was all too much. I had no idea what to do or how to do it. But when I called my sister to tell her that I couldn't support my niece anymore, she told me that she wouldn't take her home either. Meanwhile, Angela's behavior was becoming more and more erratic, and now so was my niece's. I had already figured out by this point that my niece and her friends were much more out of control than I'd ever dreamed of being at her age. They were stealing cars and joyriding all day instead of going to school, dropping acid, and all sorts of other terrible things. I only figured this all out after installing keystroke tracking software on every computer she had access to. Reading through all the emails and social media messages revealed that my niece had her friends convinced that she had cancer. She was also reasonably believable when she described how I was abusing her. She even persuaded them at one point that she was out of my apartment and homeless. This was, of course, all news to me. Even after all this, my sister refused to intervene, so Angela suggested that my niece could live with her. My sister agreed to this arrangement, much to my dismay, and all I could do was sit back and watch as everything devolved into a crazy white trash soap opera. At this point, I slipped into a full-on psychological breakdown, the kind where you drink a lot and listen to Waylon Jennings and Tim Barry, staying up until 6 a.m. drinking, singing, and crying. I called it my quarter-life crisis. It was just all too much. The heartache was so deep I couldn't hold myself up under the weight of it anymore. I'd lost two beautiful, dear friends, all respect for my oldest sister, who up to this point had been my best friend, and lost my relationship with my niece, who I helped raise because she'd become teenage hellspawn. I also had zero fucking clue about what I was doing with my life. The breakdown lasted for several weeks before my best friend, who was more like a brother to me, told me that if I didn't snap out of it, he was going to call my mom. I got a tattoo to commemorate the experience. It's an exploding dog cartoon. You can Google it. A stick figure is standing over one star, which has fallen to the ground and does not look well, where a happy-looking star floats above and is looking down on the scene. The text to the side says, Please get up. I got up. Begrudgingly, and with much less chutzpah than I'd previously had, but I got up. Life resumed its weird brand of ordinary, and I dove back into family life with Angela and the boys, along with my niece. Don't ever think that it can't get worse. Well, I just realized that we're at 41 minutes, so I guess this is where we are going to leave off for the week. So... We will pick up next week on page 38, just after I come out of my quarter-life crisis with my little star tattoo, which is still one of my favorite tattoos, even though it's, you know, aged quite a bit. Oh, I remember the other thing I wanted to tell you all. So I had somebody recently make a comment to me that the editor left some mistakes in the book, and... I wanted to say for the record, my editor did not leave any mistakes in the book. I was on 3,600 milligrams of gabapentin at the time, which is like enough to kill a rhinoceros probably. And also 
using muscle relaxers. I was on a lot of different things for my pain back when I was writing this, because back when I was writing this book, I was still a medical mystery and we hadn't figured it all out. So I accidentally saved some of the files in the wrong folders. So when I sent all of the final draft files to the person who laid out my book and everything, like the designer who laid out my book, some of the mistakes were left in and I caught most of them, but there's still, I think like three or four, I don't know. I just want to say it's not my editor's fault. Sindel, I love you very much. I'm sorry if I made it look like you did, like you made those mistakes. It was totally me and my brain fog and being on all those meds. So if you find like weird typos or whatever, that's my bad. It's not Sindel's bad. And you know what? Fuck it. I mean, I think I did pretty good for, for where I was at in life at that point. I think I've done a pretty good job. So we'll pick up and finish chapter four next week. Don't forget to rate and review and send me those screenshots so I can send you a coloring book. All right, that's it for this week. I never know how to end this damn podcast, so I'm just going to say goodbye and I'll see you all again soon.